friends. My name is Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with Brad Hambrick about his new book, Making Sense of Forgiveness, Moving from Hurt Toward Hope. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Brad Hambrick serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. He also serves as assistant professor of biblical counseling at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He is a council member of the Biblical Counseling Coalition and has authored several books, including God's Attributes, Rest for Life Struggles, and served as general editor for the Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused Curriculum. Hey there, Brad. Thank you so much for joining us for the show today. It's my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation. Before we get started on our conversation today, we're talking about Making Sense of Forgiveness, your brand new book, uh, Moving from Hurt Toward Hope. I would love for you to spend a few minutes to share with the audience about why you wanted to write a book on this particular topic. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you're in helping conversations, whether that's as a friend, a pastor, a counselor, uh, you know, forgiveness comes up a lot because uh, relationships are important to life. And uh, as fallen, broken people, intentionally, unintentionally, uh, we hurt one another. And there's relationships that we value, uh, that we want to see made whole. uh, But yet there's this pain and hurt there. Uh, As Christians, uh, we know that we ought to forgive. And so we even want to forgive. But Sometimes we can get so excited about the destination of forgiveness uh, that that idea of journey, uh, that it's a process. Um, you know, we're, we're good with progressive sanctification when it comes to our character. Uh, like we recognize it slowly over time that we're made more and more like Christ. Uh, but then oftentimes in something like forgiveness, if there's a command there, we think it ought to be a bit more instant. And so I think there's lots of excellent books out there uh, that define what forgiveness is and steps that you can take. Um, But in terms of adding some pacing guide of caring for the person who feels like they're being asked to run this race with a limp, uh, I thought there might be room for a contribution that approached the reader that way. Yeah, I really appreciated the way that you handled just the topic in general, very thoughtfully, very carefully, and winsomely even. And so thank you for taking the time to kind of pick apart the finer points of forgiveness in terms of the lived experience of having to actually, like you said, kind of walk that journey when it isn't an instant, you know, all of a sudden now things are right between ourselves and the person who has, um, you know, sought our forgiveness. I'd like to point out too, something that I'd never really thought about that you presented early on in the book, but I thought it was very insightful. And so I wanted to talk about it here. You write that quote, forgiveness may be one of the subjects where Christians are most prone to rush one another. I thought that was a really great statement. I wonder, could you explain why you think that's true? Uh, I think because forgiveness is so central to the Christian message. 
like there's lots of things that we feel like we can be clumsy and limp along with, and uh, we're not undermining our faith. But uh, because embracing forgiveness from Christ is the starting point of our Christian walk, that uh, week in, week out, when we are uh, at church in Bible studies, forgiveness is so central to what it means to be a Christian. That somehow we we get really uneasy uh, when this aspect of interpersonal relationships is hard, uh, and when we hear like, "Ooh, ooh, this is one of those moments where forgiveness is relevant." Uh, you get excited, like that student in class who finally knows the answer to the question, and you just want to raise your hand and go, "I know this one. It's forgiveness." Um, and all of that energy and apprehension for the person that they're hurt and the answer is clear. And sometimes we think when things are clear, they should be easy. But then there's lots of things where it's not that the answer is complicated. It's not that it's hard to figure out what it ought to be. It's just difficult. And so that eagerness and the beauty of the answer can often distract us from the patience that we would want to have uh, coming alongside of folks. I, again, really resonated with that statement because I think I've seen that in my own self and having conversations about forgiveness just in the context of the, the relationships under our roof, you know, in, in a marriage relationship, a parent relationship, and, and trying to walk in the wisdom that the scriptures offer us in terms of the command to forgive and living that out practically. I guess before we continue on, it's helpful to define terms because the word forgiveness is a term especially in the Christian culture that is used often, it's kind of like love and hope and then faith and things like that. And so it's helpful to even know, you know, from a biblical perspective, what is forgiveness? What does it mean? And then perhaps the other side of that spectrum, what doesn't it mean? And uh, this is one where uh, if we think in terms of a movie uh, and we ask, what is the point where forgiveness introduces into a movie script? Uh, it's usually just before the credits roll. Uh, you have all the angst, all the drama, and then uh, forgiveness is the resolution. Uh, like when forgiveness happens, that's when we get weepy and the, move, uh, the music changes from like hard to soft. And there's like seven minutes left of just closure activity. And we want... Uh, when we say, I forgive you, for forgiveness to have that kind of cumulative closure impact. But one of the statements that both in counseling and from the folks that have read the book that I think really resonated with them um, is the statement that forgiveness is what allows us to express hurt as hurt rather than hurt as anger. And so when I say, I forgive you, I'm not saying I'm all better. Uh, I'm saying that as whatever this thing is that impacted the relationship between us, when it twinges, when there's that moment that I feel uneasy because we both know what happened, that I'm going to talk about it in the tone and language of hurt rather than the tone and language of anger. And so forgiveness doesn't erase history. It doesn't, you know, in the words of Tolkien, it doesn't make all the sad things untrue. Forgiveness means I'm not going to allow this to be a barrier in our relationship. Uh, I'm not going to leverage this against you. I, uh, I'm not going to shame you with it. 
but it doesn't mean this is no longer hard for me. And so, again, this is one where a lot of times people go, oh, well, well is that how God forgives us? Uh, well, God forgives perfectly. You know, there's a, a durability to God that, um, again, I, mean, I say this somewhat literally and somewhat playfully. When God said, I forgive you in the ultimate expression, it took him three days to get over it. You know, there's crucifixion grave, and then it doesn't impact him, that there is this freedom to forgive that as finite human beings, that God lives outside of time. He knows how the story ends. He's experiencing the end of the story right now. And so whatever happens in a given moment, uh, there's a perspective that he has that we don't have. We forgive mid-story. We forgive not knowing what's going to, if it's going to happen again. And so yeah, I think humanizing the experience of forgiveness and that because our forgiveness is modeled after God's forgiveness, um, that we don't have deified expectations of how we forgive, that at best, uh, our forgiveness is a reflection as in a mirror dimly, uh, to borrow a phrase that using slightly different than the original biblical context. But I think the principle there of, you know, whatever we do. It, it is to be a reflection of what God does. Uh, that reflection is not going to be as clear, as pure, as strong as we would like it to be. And forgiveness is one of those areas where we tend to be least okay with that. Yeah, I appreciate that you even pointed out the fact that part of an element of our forgiveness is making a commitment to not leverage an offense against someone. I'm not going to allow this particular event to continue to interfere with our relationship moving forward, which is hard. And we're going to talk more about that. I'm not saying that it's the flip of a light switch. And now that's what our life looks like moving forward um, immediately. But I would love for you, if you would, maybe to dive into something that you address in the book in terms of the different ways we might be tempted to leverage an offense against someone who has asked for our forgiveness. Uh, and I think that's one where as we become more self-aware of the unhealthy or non-God-honoring things we can do when we've been hurt, it helps us to see those moments of significant change. Because uh, sometimes I think we get it stuck in our head that, oh, if I forgive him, then all the dominoes are just going to fall out like naturally because uh, I said these words to you. I said, I forgive you. But in the book, kind of talk about three spheres in which we can leverage. And leverage just means use your offense for my advantage. So uh, you hurt me and now I've got some way that I can work this. You know, and one is internally, uh, intrapersonally, within me. I can leverage this offense by using that bad thing you did to dismiss you, to just remove any credibility or voice that you may have in my own mind and how I value you as a person. Interpersonally, uh, this is maybe the most classic version. This is where I just, I play your sin like a trump card in spades. Oh yeah, remember when you did blank and whatever it is that you're asking me to do that 
just may not be my preference. We're not talking about sin or offense here, but, you know, as we do life together, there's plenty of things as we interact that just aren't our preference in a moment. And, uh, I, well, you did this, so you have no right to ask that. And we leave the relationship imbalanced. We leave it leveraged or socially that I undermine you with other people. Uh, and so if we're thinking through three spheres, uh, there's within me, uh, there's between us, and there's with other people. Part of what I want to do in, in that section of the book is uh, just to give us ears to hear a little bit. Like, what are those moments that if I'm going to forgive, these are the moments of consequence where it would show up in my choices, in my disposition, uh, how I'm viewing you as a person. So Brad, if on our journey through this process, we find ourselves leveraging the offense in one of these categories, you say, and intrapersonally, interpersonally, or socially, what do we do? How do we try to move forward? I think one of the most powerful things when it comes to change is just honesty. And so again, we, we said earlier, forgiveness is expressing hurt as hurt rather than hurt as anger. Uh, and so usually in the context of offense between people, if originally I was the offended, um, but now out of my hurt, I am offending, what hurt as anger tends to look like then is defensiveness. Now, you have no right to say anything about this. Defensiveness isn't really honesty. It's evasive. I hope what people find in the book is just a spot to put their struggle into words where they go, that makes sense. That seems normal. Normal isn't always good. As fallen, broken people, there are plenty of time when uh, normal is not good. But yeah, I could say that. Uh, I could come and say, I'm having a really hard time not dismissing you in my mind. Like when I anticipate conversations, I'm wrestling with that. That's not good. That's not in keeping with the commitment of forgiveness that I made. I want you to know I see it. I'm working on it. If there's places where you feel like that's affecting our relationship, I'm okay with you bringing that up. And that kind of honesty that, again, it's deleveraging. It's taking the advantage of this offense of it. And we're becoming peerish again. That's really helpful. Thank you for um, addressing that just kind of off the cuff. And I wanted to be sure too that we talked a little bit about God's forgiveness toward us in Christ as we think through what forgiveness is and what it isn't, maybe forgiveness in terms of our vertical relationship with God. And then obviously we're talking a lot about our horizontal relationships with the people in our lives. You know, you address the fact that there's, you know, sometimes the, a misguided notion that God's forgiveness toward us in Christ is unconditional. So that God just forgives unconditionally and therefore perhaps we're being asked to as well. You write, quote, God is infinitely generous in his forgiveness, but he is not unconditional. Can you talk a little bit about the conditional forgiveness of God and the implications it has for us? And a, a phrase that I picked up from David Pallison, uh, he talked about God's forgiveness being contra-conditional. So it's not unconditional as if there is anything goes. Uh, you know, this is where we kind of get the Galatians 6. Uh, God will not be mocked. God is not this weak-willed, grandparent-esque, uh, my grandbabies can do no wrong kind of jolly figure. That God is willing to love us in spite of the conditions without removing them. 
And so the the law that we're violating, the regulations, the guidelines for healthy life, for good relationships, those guidelines are good. They're there for our flourishing. Uh, If they were to be removed, it would be like taking away our skeleton. A lot of stuff would collapse that, that we need. And so when we come to God and say, man, I've blown it again. We don't have to worry about the generosity of his forgiveness. Uh, He's not going to roll his eyes. He's not like, oh, my goodness, you again here. Why this? Yes, I know. You know, all of that kind of snarky stuff where we tend to make God in our own image and go, I do not want him to do with me what I do to others in my own head. We don't have to worry about that. There is a generosity of God that. That's not in the cards for us. But the things that we're violating, uh, that those regulations are for our good and for our flourishing, he's not going to remove those. And so we can we can be free from the fear uh, without losing the structure that God put into life that is for our good. Could you maybe even expand on that? There was a quote I really liked that you wrote. It was kind of a fun play on words, or at least a fun little phrase you introduced. You say, God's forgiveness is not an ollie ollie oxen free for everyone to go back playing the game of life like they were before. God's forgiveness is an invitation to a new way of life. Can you explain what you mean by that statement? That... You know, you think about uh, if if your listeners have kids or they've coached or they've taught in a classroom, you get a bunch of little kids and, you know, they're sweet as they can be and their depravity on display. There's this freelance chaos going on uh, that sometimes is totally fine. It's each kid. It's the outspoken kid being the bossy little thing and the other one just being distracted and over here. But when it begins to go wrong, when it moves from individuality to dishonor and the adult in the room calls them back and says, hey, guys, come here. Uh, I mean, in my other life, I'm a coach. Uh, And so, you know, there's plenty of times when you call the team together and you're like, hey, I still like you guys, but this isn't good. And here's what needs to change uh, for things to get better. And when the adult in that situation is calling the kids to themselves. They're calling them over to have something change. Uh, Now, when I do that, whether I'm teaching a Sunday school class or coaching, I want the little guys to look at me and they want them to see a relaxed forehead. I want them to see a pleasant expression on my face. Uh, I want the nonverbals to communicate that we're relationally okay. Uh, I want the verbal to be clear Uh, that this is what needs to be different for this situation to go well. And so when God calls us to himself and he's like, hey, this isn't good. Uh, This isn't the ali ali oxen free. This isn't you being you. This is you being a sinner. And uh, some of this needs to change. Uh, That that invitation to receive his forgiveness, again, another metaphor I use in the book, maybe off of the, the parent metaphor, Uh, that if we compare forgiveness to forgiving a debt, that just because I forgive a debt doesn't mean I give you another loan. Giving you another loan is trust. When God calls us to himself, it's not just that he erases the debt. 
He says, here's the good business practices so you don't keep going into debt. Uh, you got into debt for a reason. You need to understand what that reason is. Life's not going to go as well for you if you keep doing this. And so it's not as if God gives us his credit card and says, hey, I got a cattle on Thousand Hill. Uh, you do you, man. But uh, he is calling us in this metaphor into the kinds of wise business practice that allows us to flourish, not to become independent from him. Uh, I mean, that's where the financial metaphor can break down. Uh, but so that we really appreciate that his ways are the best ways. So as we move along through this process, you recognize that there is an uncomfortable reality when it comes to forgiveness. And you say that it's never something that's deserved. So forgiveness is never something that's deserved. Um, And I smiled at the way you presented the dilemma. You said that sometimes when forgiveness doesn't feel all that good in the moment, that it occurs, quote, in a moody, angry, withdrawn, sulky funk. You say that we all have our preferred flavor of funk, but funky is going to be our emotional climate when we need to forgive. So why is this a helpful realization, especially for someone who feels stuck in unforgiveness? Uh, The reality I'm trying to portray there is when we need to forgive, almost by definition, we're never in a good mood. And so often when we hear about forgiveness, uh, we're in church. We've just sung, our hearts are full. Uh, We're wearing our best. There's kind of this social pressure that is church to uh, be on our best behaviors. And even if we scowl at our children, we don't want to do that in a way that anyone around us notices too much what's going on. And again, that, that moment when forgiveness happens in a movie. Those are the beautiful, sweet moments. You know, those are the the spots where we say, oh, but the felt experience of where we learn about forgiveness or when we see somebody else forgiving is almost polar opposite to the lived experience of when I'm having to forgive. And sometimes we think if this moment which is rough and raw and funky, doesn't match this moment, which is sweet and calm and beautiful, I'm not doing it right. But if we take a moment and we use a different virtue, let's take the virtue of courage. And we ask, for the person who is being courageous, how do they feel? Well, they feel afraid. If you're not feeling fear, courage is irrelevant. You know, the virtue of patience. When somebody expresses patience, how do they feel? Well, they feel annoyed. If somebody's not getting on your nerves, you're not being patient. And so the lived experience of words that we want to lift high, courage, patience, forgiveness, isn't the felt experience that we think. And if we feel like we're failing simply because we're in this raw, funky place, then we give up at the very moment when we really need to lean in and begin to ask God, like, what does it look like for me to honor you in this raw place? And so I think by acknowledging this, uh, it kind of gives people the freedom that go, yeah, just because I'm in whatever flavor of raw, uncomfortable emotion that I'm experiencing, it doesn't mean I'm failing. It just means this is the most relevant moment for what I've been learning. Yeah. And you even point out too, you know, where we might even be able to diagnose our our attitude in this process. You say that unforgiveness says some combination of, I want bad for you. 
I would be disappointed if good things happened to you. I want you to suffer in the ways that are comparable to how you made me feel. And then you go on and you contrast that with, with forgiveness and kind of the attitude of forgiveness. You say that forgiveness has some combination of, I want good for you. I want you to come to know God's forgiveness and freedom. I want God to change you into the kind of person who would not do again what you did. And then I want you to flourish. And I think just putting that into words and comparing those two contrasts right there on the page was really helpful for me personally. But I just appreciate that you point out that if you have this level of empathy for the person who's hurt you, um, then you are ready to forgive. So that was really insightful. And so I guess when we get to that point, and we are ready to forgive, and we've extended forgiveness to someone, we may, you know, we're still in some kind of attention, right? We feel unsure about how to wisely proceed in the process of restoring trust in the relationship. Um, And you address this issue by considering the role that boundaries might play, which I know is sometimes a term that can carry some baggage with it, but I think you approach it well in in the book. And you suggest four principles that can help us think wisely about boundaries in the context of forgiveness. So I wonder if you would share those briefly with us. And boundaries is one of those hot topic terms that uh, because it it's really more of a metaphor than it is a term. Uh, nobody owns the term. If you read 10 different books that use the term boundaries, you'll probably catch 12 different connotations uh, for what it means. And so if I were going to boil down that part of the book, uh, that oftentimes what we think of when we think boundary is we have the visual image of a wall. And we are, it's almost like dodgeball. I want something that I can hide behind that protects me from you, that there's a barrier that would make it harder for you to get from me to you. And so we think of strong structural apparatus between between two people for the purpose of protection. I think a better way to think of boundaries is more like a border. Uh, So like between two states or two countries, And those two states or countries, if we're speaking metaphorically, uh, would be between wisdom and folly. And so when I draw a boundary, uh, what I'm saying is I will relate to you in the domain of wisdom. I'm not going to relate to you in the domain of folly. Uh, And so when I draw a boundary, it's actually an invitation for you to join me in the sphere of wisdom. And usually when we get into these kinds of situations, we're, we're talking about scenarios that are really broken. Uh, so I'll just use the example of addiction for a moment. If somebody's in the throes of addiction, and there's just some basic wisdom principles in play here, that if you're struggling with addiction, you probably shouldn't carry that much cash. That cash is easy access. You throw away a receipt. Nobody knows what you did or didn't spend. If you got a check, if you got a credit card, it actually, it allows for more accountability. And so if you've got a loved one and they're insisting on high degree of cash that they carry, low degree of transparency, that boundary is saying, uh, that's foolish. And if you're If you're trying to force me to relate to you in this domain of folly that is set up for destruction, I'm going to pull back from that. Not because I dislike you, 
actually because I'm giving you an invitation to join me over here in something that is much more God-honoring and designed for our flourishing. And I think when people understand it this way, then it's not as if we are enforcing a boundary and we are the boundary police and we have this jurisdiction over your life to tell you how you can and can't live. And then all of a sudden we start to feel a little more controlling than we want to. And we're just going, I don't want to do something that's going to self-destruct. Seeing it as an invitation and seeing it as this divide between wisdom and folly, it allows the tone of what we have to say uh, to come across as much more loving but not a wishy-washy loving, a firm love uh, that can actually stand for what is right uh, without being against you, even when you're making some really destructive choices. I want to build on that too, and just let the listeners know that, you know, as always with these conversations, we do not have time to dive into all of the different pieces of of forgiveness. Um, You know, you address manipulative repentance and other, a lot of other aspects of the forgiveness process. So I want to just, you know, let the listener know that if you are interested in learning more about this, of course, as always, scroll down to the show notes. There is a link in the show description that will take you to a page on IBCD's website where you can access a link to this book and more information on this topic. But I just wanted to point that out there because I do recognize as as complex as the situations may be where forgiveness is is trying to be worked through. I just want them to know that you address even, you know, and I wish we would have talked about it, but I wanted to keep this more of a relationship conversation, but I really, really liked the chapter you did on self-forgiveness. And so we're not going to go into that in this conversation. I feel like that's a topic you could take a whole podcast to talk about, but I do want to just, yeah, I just want to let the listener know that's in there too. And and probably was one of my favorite chapters, but we will pencil that for another time. Well, as we're going on through this journey through forgiveness, you also have a chapter that explains how trust is a proportional virtue is what you say. Um, So can you tell us what this means and why it's important to consider this concept as we seek to move forward? with the person we've extended forgiveness to? And so trust and forgiveness are terms that often get used interchangeably as if they are the same thing. Uh, And I think the relationship between forgiveness and trust, to me, it's always made the most sense to go, ah, that's a relationship like between square and rectangle. If you remember that from geometry class, there was kind of the principles there that all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. You know, that square meets all of the definition of rectangle, uh, but rectangle doesn't meet all the definition of square. And so if we were doing that parallel, all trust is rooted in forgiveness. Uh, Not all forgiveness necessarily results in fully restored trust. And, you know, we see that from the life of Jesus throughout the throughout the gospel accounts. Jesus would frequently not entrust himself to people not because he was unwilling to forgive them, but because, as it would say, I think it's in John, that he knew their hearts. Uh, Gary Thomas uh, uh, wrote a book recently called Walk Away Jesus, uh, where he just looks at the gospel accounts with an eye to the relationships where Jesus did not display trust. And it's really a, a fascinating look at one of those areas that I really think we've underemphasized. Uh, But that kind of sets up this idea of proportional trust. You know, there's 
if you will, absolute virtues and proportional virtues. Uh, so absolute virtues, I mean, we could wiggle on this a little bit here, but honesty is generally a absolute virtue. Uh, occasionally, we may be in a Corey Tim Boom situation where we are hiding oppressed people from the Holocaust and we need to lie about the folks that we've got hide, hidden in our closet. Uh, for, but for the most part, we know like honesty is what honors God. And sometimes we take trust and we treat it the same way. And when we do that and we get in a situation where somebody's not trustworthy, we start to feel like God is asking us to be naive that we feel like God is asking us to be unwisely vulnerable. And so if we follow the example of Jesus, he tended to trust people to the degree that they were trustworthy. He would meet them where they are, and he would invite them, give them that opportunity to excel and move beyond that. And because he's the Savior, he's giving them uh, the grace and power to do so. And, you know, whatever influence we have on one another is less than that. But uh, this idea that as we are in the forgiveness mode of something that was a significant violation of trust, and it's not just that what was done was wrong, but it was trust damaging. If trust were like my ankle, after this event, I'm going to walk with a limp or need crutches for a while. Then what I try to do there is, is to give some framework Instead of treating trust like it's all or nothing, either I trust you or I don't, putting some degrees on the thermometer of like, here is a progression of trust. Let me see where I'm at. Let me see what's next so that I can take a step towards growth instead of feeling like God is asking me to take a leap in growth that feels overwhelming, intimidating, and unwise. We've got uh, time for just a couple more quick questions. So let me go ahead and ask you, and maybe just take the position of, of somebody who's listening. Maybe there is a listener who has extended forgiveness to someone who has hurt them recently, but to their surprise, they've continued to wrestle with feelings of fear, anger, mistrust, maybe shame, and, and sometimes even intrusive thoughts in the wake of the event that occurred and, and the initial forgiveness that had been extended to the offending party. You highlight this particular experience writing that, quote, forgiveness was so daunting, we thought finally doing it would make our life easier. But then we realize after an initial time of relief, post-crisis forgiveness is only a different kind of heavy. In this particular chapter, you introduce the terms crisis forgiveness and post-crisis forgiveness. Can you explain what those terms mean and help us to connect this difficult experience to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so uh, I am the kind of counselor that I will make up a phrase. Uh, and so, you know, if you're going post-crisis forgiveness, crisis forgiveness, I've not heard of that before. Uh, well, I make up the terms that I need to represent what I'm trying to talk about. And so uh, crisis forgiveness is just that time when it's hard. And then post-crisis forgiveness, it's remarkably ordinary. It's when things feel like they're supposed to be normal, but they're not. So again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak, I'm going to use theological term as metaphor, uh, as opposed to like hard parallel here. But if we're saying our salvation and our sanctification, and if we ask which is harder, well, this one's climactic. Like we've got a salvation testimony of what it took for us to come to this spot that we would surrender all. And then sanctification 
is often so much more ordinary, but it doesn't make it easier. It's a different kind of hard. And so that's the contrast that for some people, for some people, when they say the words, I forgive you, uh, whether it's the nature of the offense, the nature of the relationship, how they're internally disposed, like, but again, variety of those kind of factors. Sometimes it's that, it's that aftermath of maybe it's after an affair, you know, it was, maybe it was the husband who was unfaithful and the wife hears people affirming her husband for things that he does well. And she realizes they don't know. And they're, they're commenting on something that it doesn't mean what they're saying is untrue, but they, it just, what do I do with that? It's, it's not that I don't want my husband to be affirmed for those things, but nobody gets how hard it is for me to hear this. And I'm wrestling with that ordinary kind of in passing, just encouragement between one believer and another as we're going through church. And I've got to emotionally navigate that terrain. It's that aspect of the experience of forgiveness uh, that that chapter delves into. It's helpful just to know that that's not an abnormal experience, that if somebody is really wrestling with that post-crisis forgiveness, that that doesn't mean that they're less of a believer or that they're somehow doing something necessarily wrong. It's just, you know, acknowledging, like we said in the beginning, the lived experience and the difficulty and the hurt that has taken place and that it takes time to heal. Forgiveness costs. It's not a forgive and forget, like, and then everything's fine and, and nothing has happened. Somebody has to pay, absorb that cost, right, to restore or at least work towards restoring that relationship. And so um, perhaps even in those moments of post-crisis forgiveness, it's, it's almost as if we're feeling the pain of that cost all over again. Well, again, thank you so much for this conversation. We're at the end of our time together, but I would love to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to our audience. There may be someone listening who is presently having a hard time making sense of forgiveness and feels stuck in the process. What would you say to encourage this listener with the hope and help of Jesus Christ? I think one thing that can help us with that is um, that is forgive if forgiveness was as simple as we feared it was. Uh, and usually it's we fear it's simple and that's why we feel stupid, like we're doing something wrong, we just can't get it right. If forgiveness were as simple as we feared that it was, our Bible wouldn't be as thick as this. That this is the central message of the Christian faith. But God used 66 books written over hundreds of years by a plethora of authors in a great variety of circumstances, because as powerful and good and precious and beautiful uh, as forgiveness is, it's hard. And so as I've thought about the way that I think and write about counseling and theology and relationships, I think I'm probably left-handed in the biblical counseling movement. And by that, what I mean is, I think most of us go from the Bible towards lived experience. I tend to go from lived experience back towards the Bible. And for that person who says, I do, I feel pressured by, by how passionately we talk about forgiveness. I want you to know it's safe to ask those hard questions that, uh, 
again, we wouldn't have as much Bible as we do. You know, maybe one of the places that's worth turning to is the Psalms, where uh, the Psalms are unique in the Bible, uh, in that most of the rest of the Bible is God talking to us. Uh, the Psalms are God giving us words to speak back to him. And when you look in the Psalms, there's some angry Psalms that don't get concluded by the end. There's some despairing Psalms that don't just start singing with hope at the end. There's some confused Psalms that don't have clarity by the end. And when you look at Psalms like that, I call them mid-journey Psalms. Like they're not into the story, looking back at life with 2020 hindsight. And when we come to those, it's God saying, it's okay for you to talk to me this way. I knew we would have these conversations, so I drafted a few of them for you so that, that you wouldn't feel irreverent. And sometimes we ask, like, where is the hope in these really crunchy, spicy, awkward psalms? And sometimes the hope of the psalms is not in the content. It's not in the words on the page. It's in the person they're being spoken to. So, again, I, I use that metaphor of teenagers with these a good bit that uh, I have two teenagers right now. Uh, they're wonderful. I love them. They're a little moody. But if they're coming and they're upset about something and it bothers them and they feel like it's unfair, wrong, whatever, if they're talking to me, there's hope in that. Like it means I still matter enough for them to come and there is that opportunity to engage. And so for that person, I, uh, I think passages like the Psalm, if you're like ah, on this subject, I, I hope my book would feel like a friendly resource to come alongside of you uh, to put that into words, not just for the purpose of self-awareness as an end in itself, but a growing self-awareness that allows you to engage with fellow believers, to engage with the Bible, to engage with God in a way that doesn't feel rushed, uh, that feels more authentic. Thank you so much, Brad, for those words of encouragement. I want to let the listener know, again, just a quick reminder that if you are interested in learning more about this book, you can scroll down to the show notes, click the link there. That'll take you to a page on our website where we have uh, all the information that you need there for this book. And then, um, Brad, I do want to ask you if somebody listening is interested in getting connected with you and your ministry and the many, many resources that you have available, where can they go to find you online? In the role that I'm in, uh, I get to devote a fair amount of time to resource production. Uh, and that's kind of what I've been tasked with here at the Summit Church and in my role at Southeastern Seminary. Uh, and so the easiest place to access any of that kind of stuff uh, is just bradhambrick.com. Uh, so my first name, my last name, uh, Brad, B-R-A-D, ham and a brick, uh, bradhambrick.com. And uh, about anything that I do uh, will be found, be found there. And I try to organize it in a way that uh, folks can find the subject-specific material that uh, suits their need at the moment. Well, thank you again for joining us for this helpful conversation. I hope that the listeners are encouraged, perhaps can relate to a lot of what we discussed today. And then um, definitely, I hope that they take the next step on their journey and, and get a copy of this particular book as just like you said, a resource, almost like a friend in writing who can come uh, sit with them in their pain and give them um, just some helpful things to think through as they're walking and navigating this, this like you say, post-crisis forgiveness journey. And um, again, so thank you so much for taking the time to produce this resource and for talking with us today. 
Uh, My pleasure, and I, I appreciate the invitation. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.